It's so good to have you with us today. We're going to continue in our series in, on Know the Why. I look at the book of Romans. And today we're in Romans chapter 5. And I'm so glad that uh, I'm getting to preach this text. It's actually one of my favorite texts that have, has ministered to me during troubling times. And I hope it'll do the same for you. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We also have obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. Surprising turn there, isn't there? We don't just boast in our hope, but we boast in our afflictions. Because we know that afflictions produce endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, today we're going to spend most of our time with verse 3 through 5, that portion that begins with boasting in our afflictions. And we're going to see how hope emerges out of despair. But before we do that, I want to look at the first two verses uh, because they're important in the overall flow of the epistle. Notice that chapter 5, verse 1 begins with the word, therefore. Whenever we see that in an epistle, then we know that Paul is making, or the author of the epistle, is making a summative statement. He's making a conclusion based upon the facts that have been presented. And in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 8, through chapter 8, is actually thought to be the most theologically rich portion of Scripture. And here we stand in chapter 5, right in between there, and Paul draws a conclusion, and it's an important one. And to be able to see the foundation for the conclusion he's making, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to go back and review and touch on some of the high points in the valleys between chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 5, verse 1. The therefore demands that we do that. After the introduction, and Paul gets to his argument in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, we can never achieve peace with God through our own works. It's only going to be by faith. It's going to be by God's grace. To understand why that is true, we need to understand the consequences of the sin that we've committed in our life. Whenever we've sinned, whenever we've fallen short of the glory of God, then God's wrath is revealed against that sin. Chapter 1, verse 8, Paul talks about the wrath of God. Now, you know, we spend a great deal of time at Eagle Ridge talking about the grace of God. And we really should, 
God's grace is amazing. And most of our attention should be focused on the graced portion of the gospel. Because of God's grace, because of His great love, He has made it possible for us to be reconciled with Him. In the background of that grace, though, is our sinfulness. And our sinfulness does not deserve forgiveness. Our sinfulness deserves God's punishment upon us. And Paul begins his argument that says God is angry. His wrath falls against, comes against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And you know who that includes, don't you? You know, we tend to want to compare ourselves to one another or maybe even compare ourselves to the most despicable men or women in history and say, you know, when I compare myself to the crowd, I come out looking pretty good. However, the comparison is not against us and others. The purity comparison is against us and against God's Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life. The Scripture says that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And because of that, we are deserving of God's judgment. So though we spend, and rightly so, spend a great deal of time, all ministers of the gospel do, talking about the grace of God, foundational to that is that we have sinned and we deserve eternal separation from the favor of God we deserve his wrath. Paul continues in chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, this idea that God's wrath is going to be exposed in judgment. Let me read the text to you. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse, for when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do these things is based on the truth. Do you think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of, this kindness, of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's judgment is intended to lead you to repentance because of your hardened an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. Here's that word again. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew, but also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace. Here's the foreshadowing of the peace that we're going to read about in chapter 5. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. 
In this argument, Paul makes it clear that we're not comparing ourselves one to the other. In fact, he says, when you do that, you should be ready to stand a judgment. The moment you looked at somebody else's sin and say, you know, I'm not as bad as that, then you have piled the wrath of God on you because you have not understood that none of us are righteous. None of us. No, not one. And so the question is not, are we righteous or unrighteous? Or the question is not, how, how unrighteous are we? If we are unrighteous, we are unrighteous. But then, once we begin comparing ourselves to other people and start to think, well, I'm not quite so bad, the Apostle Paul lets us know that God's wrath is piled up against us for that very act. He is the only one that judges in truth. God will judge our sin. His full wrath will fall on us in the day of judgment. Some of Paul's readers might ask, well, is this fair? If all of us have sinned and all of us deserve this judgment, then is it fair for God to do this judgment? Shouldn't he look down and say, well, nobody gets it. And because nobody gets it, I should just call this whole thing off. But Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. He says, but if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what did we say? He says, I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? So the question is, is God unrighteous if he brings his wrath and his judgment upon those who have sinned? And Paul says, absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? I'm so glad that Paul doesn't stop writing in chapter 3 because at this point it's rather depressing. All of us have sinned. All of us are deserving of the wrath of God. Those of us who think we're better than others, we're even more deserving of the wrath of God. Is it wrong for God to judge and uh, to mete out His wrath on sinful mankind? Paul says, absolutely not. He says, God is going to judge the world and He is righteous in doing so. But then, he continues on in chapter 4. And we learn about the great work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. How He went to the cross and He bore our penalty, our shame. He went to your cross and to my cross. And there He paid the price for our sin. And the full wrath of God descended upon Him. And then, God credits us with the righteousness of Jesus. A transference takes place where God looks at the cross and sees the blood of Jesus that was poured out for the sins of the world. And if we express our faith in Him, if we believe, if we trust in Him, then Jesus' righteousness is credited to our account. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. 
So in chapter 4, after Paul relates this concept to the uh, father of the Jews, to Abraham, he makes a summative comment that leads right into chapter 5, verse 1. In Romans 4, 22 through 25, it says, Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Friends, we may be bankrupt. Our sinfulness may have bankrupted us to where we have no righteousness. And we're deserving of the full wrath of God. But Jesus went to the cross. He took on the payment for our sin. He took on the full wrath of God. And our, it was credited to our account with Jesus' righteousness. Not only for Abraham alone, it says, but also for us. When he died on the cross, he died for my sin. He died for your sin. And because of what happened there, new life is possible. Paul goes on to say, it will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And then our text begins. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The account has been settled. The price has been paid. I want to pause right here in the middle of the message and say to you that if you've never received Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you've never expressed your faith in Him, if you've never said to Him, I am willing to live the rest of my life for you, please forgive me of my sins, then I don't want you to wait to the end of the sermon. I want you to, in this moment, right now, to pray to receive Christ. Will you bow your heads with me and say a prayer like this? Dear Lord, I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short of your glory. I know I'm deserving of your full wrath. But I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave. And Lord, right now I place my faith in you. And it's my intent to surrender my life over to you for you to be the Lord of my life. And I pledge to live the rest of my life serving you. If you prayed that prayer and asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, and if you have expressed your belief in Him that I have good news for you, it has been credited to you for righteousness. You're going to see a number down at the bottom of the screen. I want you to text us right now. And let us know that you've prayed that prayer. We want to follow up and get some material to you. Rejoice with you and talk to you about the next steps in your faith. Paul says, we have peace with God because of our faith in Jesus Christ. But then the question is, if we have peace with God, why do we go through difficult days? Why are there hard times for us? Why does injustice take place in the world? And Paul moves from this great conclusion in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 
to now come to the heart of the text that I want us to look at, verses 3 through 5. And I want you to know that the tribulations you're going through is not because of God's wrath. It's not punishment. The truth is, hard times come. And hard times come to everyone. Now sometimes they're a direct result of something we've done, no doubt. Sometimes they're the activity of the evil one. As Satan is trying to afflict us. Sometimes bad things happen because, well, bad things happen. You know, I've heard a lot of people ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? I've heard very few people ask the question, why do good things happen to people like me? The truth is, there will be a certain number, amount of hardship that all of us will go through. But I can promise you that God will not waste a single bit of pain that you go through because what He is intending for you is character development. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. It says, Not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. One way to notice this is just to look at the words highlighted like they've been on the screen for you. But another way to look at them is to see them as progressive steps. And I'd like to show you this. That if we trust in God, here's what happens. Here's what happens to the people who trust in God through the, through the tribulation or the difficult times. Uh, they hang in there. They trust in God. And then the perseverance proves their character. And then their character allows them to hope. So notice the steps. From tribulation, to perseverance, to character, then to hope. But what if we choose not to trust in God? You remember that trust in God that some that are viewing uh, this online service right now just expressed at the very beginning of saying, I trust in you for my salvation. I believe that you died on the cross and rose from the grave. That trust in God is essential and necessary to take place through the rest, rest of our lives. And so now when we face tribulation, we express our trust in God just like we did then, and we believe in Him. We know that He's going to carry us through, and then the tribulation moves to perseverance, it develops our character, and we end up in hope. But what happens if we don't trust in God? What happens if we decide to blame God for our difficult days? Well, we want to quit. We want to give up. We don't persevere. We quit. It doesn't develop character in us. It develops a sense of emptiness in us. And it doesn't give us hope. Instead, it gives us despair. In Luke chapter 22, verses 32, Jesus connects faith with perseverance. 
He says, but I prayed for you that your faith will not fail, and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Paul and Barnabas did the same thing in Acts 14.22. They said it is necessary for you to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. There is a direct relationship between the perseverance turning into hope and our willingness to trust in God. In the same way we trust in God for the beginning of our salvation, we trust in God in the middle of our salvation. And if we do not, if we listen to the lies of Satan and we blame God instead of trusting God, then we end up drowning in despair. You know the difference between being a victim and being an overcomer, being a survivor, being an overcomer? is faith. It's expressing this faith in God. Those who trust in God overcome. They do not live their lives as victims. And so how do you do this? How do you not give in to the temptation to blame God when you're having difficult times instead to trust in Him. But what I would encourage you to do is to learn the spiritual discipline of lamenting. You know, the Bible is filled with laments. In fact, there's actually a book called Lamentations in the Old Testament. Uh, there is grieving taking place throughout the Scripture. There are pauses for lament. In fact, up to two-thirds of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Ezekiel lamented. Daniel lamented. You'll remember that Jesus even grieved over Lazarus' tomb. Lament is actually the pathway to trusting in God. And lament has two parts. The first part is to name your sorrow. And the second part is to acknowledge God's presence in the midst of the pain. I'd like to show you how this works by looking at Lamentations, the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. Listen as Jeremiah names his sorrow in verses 17 and 18. I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is, and then I thought my future is lost as well as my hope from the Lord. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He calls it like it is. He names his pain. So on the path to trusting in God in the midst of difficult times, the first thing you do is you accurately and honestly name the pain. But then instead of blaming God for that pain, you invite Him to come into that pain with you and ask for His presence in the midst of it. Let me read Lamentations 3, 22-24 to you. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. For His mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say the Lord is my portion. 
Therefore, I will put my hope in him. A few years ago, I went to visit uh, one of the students at the school where I teach. His wife was chronically ill. We went to uh, a restaurant for breakfast, and I started to ask him about it, how his wife was doing. And he said to me, he said, Professor, you know, I know that, uh, that people are praying for her. I've been praying for her, but as I've been praying, what I feel the Lord is telling me is that He's not going to heal her. He says, I've come to the conclusion that my wife will likely die of this disease. I didn't know what to say other than to say, I'm sorry. And he says, if you want to pray for me, pray for me this way. Pray that God will not take His presence from me. And he told me about how God is with him in the midst of the sorrow and in the midst of the pain. The Scripture says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod, it comforts me. You anoint my head with oil in the presence of mine enemies. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will be in the house of the Lord forever. The psalmist still had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But don't miss this. He did not have to walk alone. And neither do you. You can use the spiritual discipline of lament to be able to trust in God during difficult days. The story I told you a moment ago had an amazing ending. It's been several years ago now, and so I don't have a, a status on his wife. But I do remember when he came across the stage to earn his doctorate, and I put the hood on him and shook his hand, and I looked out in the audience, and his wife was sitting there. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. Let me ask you right now not to ignore the pain, not to blame God for the hardship or the difficulty. Let me ask you right now to do two things. First, name it. And second, ask God to enter in to your presence in the midst of the pain. And out of that, this tribulation will bring about hope. It will give you perseverance. It will develop your character. And you will find hope. Will you do me the honor of praying with you right now that God will use the circumstance you found yourself in. That He'll enter in to your presence in the midst of the pain and give you the strength not just to get through it, but to come through it stronger. Father, it would be impossible for me to know the details of the pain of the people who are worshiping with us right now. But Lord, I know my pain. 
I know what I've experienced in the times that I've been in the midst of despair. And I simply named it and called on you, and there you were in the middle of it. Never have I had to go through it alone. And I know, Lord, I have full confidence you'll do the same for my friend that's watching this service online right now. I pray, Lord, that you will be in their midst and that you will strengthen them and you will give them what they need to take the next step. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please let us know how we can pray for you. Let us know how we can serve you. And we look forward to the day when circumstances change and you can come back and worship uh, with us here at Eagle Ridge. A couple of Sundays ago, I got to be in the audience for the first time. And I can tell you, it was amazing to be back. We invite you back when you're comfortable and you're able. Until then, remember, name your pain. Invite God into your sorrow. God bless you.